and we pray over them. And I have a little stack here, and so I should have given these to you. But would you please raise your hand if you'd be willing to take one of these requests? Uh, just make sure you check the name, and it's not your own, uh, hopefully, because uh, otherwise we could always have someone else take it. But if you're willing to pray over a request that someone from this church has written down that they have asked prayer for, would you please raise your hand? And would you commit um, to praying for the next season um, over these requests? And as Ben makes his way around there, um, I just want to give us a prompt here because maybe some of you have some urgent requests that you would like to share or some things that God has done in your life that you'd like to share so that we could praise him. Um, but I just want to give a little bit of a prompt as well as we are now a few days after the funny little holiday that we call St. Patrick's Day, um, which I promise you is about more than just the Irish and day drinking. Um, but if you know about St. Patrick, then you know that St. Patrick, his story is kind of wild, where either he was kidnapped and sold into slavery, or some say that he actually sold himself into slavery in order to reach the people um, that he was trying to reach as a missionary. And one of the things that he talked about towards the end of his life was just how that period of time, living as a slave, um, prepared him um, to reach those that he was going to minister with. And how he talked about that in the middle of it, he had no idea how God was going to use that. That he was going through this terrible, difficult season of being a slave. And in the end, God used it. In the end, God was preparing him. He was equipping him. He was using that evil for good. But at the time, he didn't know. And so, maybe you'd like to share with us a season of your life in which you were going through something difficult, something hard, and you couldn't see in the moment how God was going to use that, how God was going to equip you, how God was going to bless others through that. But now on this side of it, you can see you have the vision of hindsight there. And so maybe if you don't have a request, would you just share with us a story um, of something that you've gone through that you didn't know what he was going to use that for and be willing to share that with us. Um, but for the rest of you, we're just going to open up the floor. Would you please raise your hand? Just remind us your name, and Ben will come around with the mic, and we will pray for one another this morning. Hi, I'm Eli Gibbs. I do have a request today. Uh, I'm graduating from South Dakota Mines this semester. Yeah. Uh, thank you. <laughs> been a long four years. <laughs> uh, and I just had an interview pretty recently uh, for a position in North Carolina. And I received an email back saying that they would like to arrange um, a trip out to their plant for me for a formal interview at the earliest possible date. So just prayers for everything that yeah. goes along with that. Okay. Going out to North Carolina for a formal interview, my first really formal interview. Uh, it's exciting, it's scary, so it's a prayer and a praise because right. uh, this is a position that I'm really interested in and I'm thankful that God has brought me this far. Oh, yeah, awesome. Sounds good. We'll pray for you there. Pray for God's direction. We'll pray to see if there's going to be a door open for you to live so far away from us here. <laughs> I'm Axel. It's been a little bit since I've been in here. Um, I got word on Monday that a longtime friend of mine passed away. Um, we don't know how. All we know is it's a gunshot wound and it's being investigated. Um, but knowing him and knowing the mental struggles he's had, he likely killed himself. And it's been weighing heavily on my mind mm -hmm. because he leaves behind a three-year-old son. 
having three of my own, it, I want to pray for his mm -hmm. kids. I reached out to their mom to say, hey, you know, if, if whenever he gets older, he wants some good memories of his dad just to hit me up. But mm -hmm. it's been weighing heavily on my heart all week. Mm -hmm. And I just pray that they, they find some peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Axel. We'll be praying for you. We'll be praying for that family as you guys just seek God's peace in such a, such a tragic, chaotic situation. Hi, Tatiana again here. Um, so, uh, about what God is doing in my life. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, through that, all those um, bad things going on, so uh, God was faith faithful, always um, saving my family and moving them, <coughs> most of them, to the uh, safe places. So, and uh, praise Lord that uh, he brought um, uh, five me members uh, to the United States, and five of them going to travel tomorrow, another five, uh, mm -hmm. uh, tomorrow, uh, and they will arriving on uh, Tuesday at 10 uh, p.m. So, um this family who is arriving is a special mm -hmm. because all the way when the world started, we tried to find some resources to help them mm -hmm. to be in safe. And it's kind of was the way that we couldn't. The only God was doing his way how to save them in the worst city for 52 days, how they provided them the car suddenly working, even it was all shootings through and through, <laughs> and the, how they traveling through the border with country, enemy country, all the way from the south to the north, mm -hmm. and then other European countries and stuff like that. And now, when they come in, my resources is finished. <laughs> I'm in zero. So, <laughs> I have no idea how they're going to um, establish here. But mm -hmm. we believe that yeah. God will provide as he did before. And we, I remind myself how he did it before with no resources, no even one person can even to check if they're alive a long time. So um, we just, I praise him that he's showing that he's faithful, mm -hmm. God is faithful, and um, he can provide. We don't have to worry too much about. He will give. And I'm really thankful for the church members that show shows Christ uh, mm -hmm. through by doing whatever you you can thank you so much yeah thanks for sharing that Tanya. we know god is the god who provides um and again just huge thanks to you guys who've been helping as many of her family come in and move into town but of course you three ladies are hard to help because you're not needy at all but we're just thankful that anya luba and diana are here and they're able to <laughs> be supported in that way so slava boga we're praising god um for that but more need um especially it's your brother alex who's coming this week, right? Okay. Sasha Sanyok. So we'll see if we can do what we can um, to bless them. 
<laughs> and we're going to trust God with the rest. Thanks for sharing that update. Okay, I'm Audrey. Um, I lead worship sometimes, so <laughs> most of you probably know me. Like today, yeah, you saw. <laughs> um, but I am also graduating this spring, and I am looking for a PhD program and the decision for a school that I've been offered um, a pretty good position in. I have to get my decision to them by this Friday. Uh, but it's in North Dakota, and I just feel like a lot of doors are closing on that. Mines does have a program opening probably this spring, so just prayers for guidance and making the right decision this week. I think I know what I'm going to do, but just for continued prayer and um, counsel from wise people as I make the decision about where I will stay and get an education for the next probably five years. So, yeah. 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 Thank you, guys. Yeah. We'll pray for God's direction because uh, we don't want to selfishly say, well, of course you need to stay here. Um, we want what God has planned for you. Yeah. Good morning. I'm Mary. Um, I'm trying not to let this trouble my mind too much, but I was on my second oldest granddaughter's Facebook and she has herself listed as a demonic Satan worshiper. And there's a lot of demonic pictures and stuff on there. So I would just like to pray that God would touch mm. her soul. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Praying that God would show himself stronger for that. Thanks for sharing that, Mary. We're sorry. <clears throat> Excuse me. My name is David. Um, this past Friday, I had a uh, interview for, actually a double interview for assistant manager positions for the company I work for. And um, it's kind of like last minute, so I usually would pray that the interview would go well. I think it did, but <laughs> you don't know. There's tons of people applying for it, and we're all super competitive. So just pray that like yeah. whatever decision happens, you know, hopefully it's God you know, yeah. focused and that even in the competitive nature, we actually still don't let that decision like, oh, like, I, I don't know, I guess, like, make us want to tear each other down type of thing mm -hmm. or whatever, but just that it just goes well. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, David. Pray for that. Lots of opportunities with you guys. We're praying for God's will, God's direction there. Um, I have an update for Katie's request. Ooh, sorry, you're just supposed to just run around, actually. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. But after this. Um, so it turns out they got like half of the money that was stolen from them back. So praise God oh, for yeah. that. Um, and also, like, the reason that she's not here today is because she's in Sioux Falls with her mom because her mom had some health complications. A couple, like, stroke-like things, mm. I believe. But no, like, brain damage or anything like that. So I think she's still recovering from yeah. that, but... Praise God for providing in that her dad was able to act mm. pretty quickly and basically save your life. So. Oh, wow. Praise God. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, um, so if you guys, you'd recognize Katie. She plays piano sometimes as well. But her family's bank was robbed like two weeks ago, and they basically said, no, you're not going to get it back. And it sounds like they're getting some of it back. So, yeah, so. that's good. Thanks for sharing that update. Um, and then I guess I would share another update as well is just, you know, continue to pray for us and our family. Uh, yesterday was Lydia's three-month birthday, so she's now three months old. We're excited about that. Um, but she had a really hard day. Um, just a lot of upset stomach type stuff over the last, it seems like, two weeks. And so she was up just about every hour for like the last two days. And so pray for us, pray for Lena, as she was basically didn't sleep last night, um, trying to figure out what do you need. And so be praying for us as we continue to try to Take care of this little one and just for lena just for energy and encouragement um because she's an awesome mom but this can get discouraging you know 
My name is Haley. Logan, my brother, shared about our grandma last week, Arlene. We do have a little update. Um, she is being placed on hospice due to end-stage Parkinson's, as well, which is specifically Lewy body dementia and psychosis. So she's not doing great. Yeah. But. Yeah. But thanks for sharing that. Sorry about your grandma. But pray for you. Pray for Logan. The whole family there. Hi, my name is Sally, and I have a really dear friend, and many of you know her, Kim Reagan. Um, she has thyroid cancer, and she was just had surgery at Mayo Clinic to remove all the lymph nodes that the cancer had spread to, and so the prayer is just that mm -hmm. the doctors got all of it. Mm -hmm. But Kim, if you ever meet her, she's just an incredible testimony, and she has peace, like the Bible says, peace that passes all understanding. Mm -hmm. and so just pray for Kim. Yeah, will do. Pray for Kim. Pray that the surgery is helpful and effective. Um, Thanks for sharing, you guys. Making Ben work over here. Hi, I'm Irene, and I told you last week about my dad's passing, but one thing I forgot to ask prayer on is that at his memorial service, the gospel message was presented so clearly. And so we're just praying for the people heard it and that their hearts were changed and um, moved towards Jesus. So if you can join, join us in that, that would be mm -hmm. great. Yeah, it's encouraging to hear that that was shared at his service because I know that's what he would want. Okay, well, if that is it, um, here's what we're going to do. We have about 11 or 12 requests, and so um, I'm going to invite you guys to kind of gather together, maybe groups of two, three, maybe if you have to, six, um, and I'm just going to assign you um, to pray over a few of these together. We're going to take a few minutes and just approach God's throne and ask him to hear us, ask him to act. And so for you guys... Here on my left, would you guys pray for Eli and his job interview? Pray for direction there. Would you pray for Axel, um, for his friends, family, and just for him as they continue to mourn this loss and seek peace there? Would you also pray for Tatiana and her family and all of the, the provisions that they're asking for from God? And then I'm going to give you um, Eileen as well. If you could pray for Eileen's family as the gospel was shared at her father's memorial service. And now we are just praying for that family, that people would come to know Christ because of that, that death in their family. Um, so that's you guys. For you guys in the middle here, um, would you pray for Mary's granddaughter um, that, that Jesus would break whatever, whatever bonds I'm around that one? Um, would you pray for Audrey and for direction as she seeks God's will in whether She's called to go to school in North Dakota or stay here. Um, and will you also pray um, for David for his job interview that he has coming up? And again, just for direction, but maybe for this open door. And then pray for him and his coworkers that they would be nice to each other, not too hard, as they're competing for this position. So those are the ones you guys will pray over. And you guys on my right, um, would you pray um, for Katie Noose and her family? Uh, would you be praying for their situation where they are worried that they lost all this money and now for her mom's health complications. Um, would you pray for, for whatever is going on with that? Um, would you pray for me, for Lena, for Lydia, for our family? And would you also pray um, for Haley and for Logan, for their grandma, who is now being moved to hospice? Pray for their family. And then pray for Sally's friend, Kim, 
um, who just had surgery for thyroid cancer, and we're just praying that God would heal through that. And so what I like to do is I always like to write these things down as they come up so that I can pray as well through the week and so that we can know what we're praying for here. And so would you now just gather into groups? Um, maybe you're going to find someone who did write it down, and will we just spend a few minutes um, praying for one another? Um, but I'm going to go ahead and give you a minute um, to move as you need to, and then I will begin praying, and then I will free you to approach the Lord. Yeah, I can take it. Thank you. So I'll give you a minute to move there, and then I will pray to end us as well. Um, so, Father God, uh, we just come before your throne now. We thank you for being a God who hears us. We thank you for being the God who has invited us to come before you. We thank you for the access that we have in Christ through tearing the veil. And so now, Jesus, we just ask you to do what only you can do. And we come together as a family making these requests. And so we just ask that your ear would be turned towards us and that you would hear. So, Lord, we love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.
Lord, we believe that you are compassionate and gracious. You are slow to anger. You are abounding in love and faithfulness, that you maintain love for thousands. You forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And so, Lord, if we found favor in your eyes, I just pray that you would act on these prayers. Um, I just thank you for this body. We have come together and come before your presence. So now, God, as, as many people um, are in situations where what we are seeking is presence from you, is the peace that only you can provide, I just pray that you'd be close to those. I pray that you would speak, that you'd give direction for those looking to live out your will. I thank you for their hearts that are, that are wanting to follow you. And God, we just pray for the other situations in which because of sickness, because of tragedy, um, because um, the seeds have been scattered and we're just wondering to see what would happen, God. Um, we're just relying on you and putting our trust and our faith in you, asking that you would act. And so, God, we just give these before you, declaring that you are good. And we just ask that you would hear our prayers. And so we love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, guys. Thank you for leaning into that time. Um, again, we, we always want to practice this prayer time. One of the ways, because um, not only do we obviously value time of approaching God, but we don't just want to be um, a church where you just are experiencing um, on the receiving end of ministry, but we want to equip you uh, for ministry as well. We want to equip you um, to be able to pray for and with one another. We want to equip you to remind you that you can approach God's throne, um, that Jesus has made that way. And so I just thank you for leaning into this time. Um, sometimes it can be difficult. Sometimes it can feel awkward. But I promise you this is a helpful exercise for you as you continue to seek to follow God. Um, and now we're going to transition into our teaching time, where we have been going through this series that we're calling Biblia Obscura, where we are walking through some of the most obscure parts of the Bible, again, in order to equip us in knowing how it is that we can learn from this, where we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, that it's useful, it's profitable for us, but yet we approach some different parts of the scripture, like we've covered genealogies, and we approach these parts and we think, well, what on earth does this have for me? How on earth is this going to teach me to be righteous? Or Nick shared on how it is that the scripture corrects us, rebukes us, how it is that it builds us up, and then he shared the story of, of the man accidentally touching the Ark of the Covenant and dying. And there are these obscure different genres of the Bible, like books like Third John, what do we even do with that? And then there are just stories that we go through and we read and we think, well, what on earth is God trying to speak to me through this? And so what we're doing in this series is we're going over those things. Um, we're going over some of those stories that might be the hardest for us to try to figure out what God has for us. And it's a difficult task, but I promise you it's good. It's a good task for us because, again, we want to equip you to be able to approach God's word and to be as, as Jesus called us to be, to be listeners, to be listening to what it is that he has to say for us. And so would you uh, open up your Bibles and find your way to the book of 2 Kings. Uh, we're going to look at a story in 2 Kings chapter 2 that many of you might read through and think, what on earth is this doing in the Bible? What on earth does this have for me? Why would this be in God's word? How can I learn from this? Because we recognize all scriptures got breathed. But how do we see Jesus in some of these stories? So if you find your way to 2 Kings chapter 2, it's a short story, which lends itself to part of the reason it's so obscure and so confusing. But again, we're going to walk through it. We're going to see what God has for us in it. And so the words will also be on the screen there as we begin in verse 23 of 2 Kings chapter 2. So follow along with me. Um, buckle up. Because from there, 
Elisha went up to Bethel. And as he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around and looked at them, and he called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. And that's the story. Um, this is one of the craziest things, I think, in the entire Bible, um, where Elisha, this prophet of God, is just insulted. They call him bald. He curses them. And after being cursed by the man of God, 42 of them are mauled by bears. And this story is never mentioned again in the rest of the Bible. Um, no explanation. You know how Jesus interpreted the parable that we looked at a few weeks ago. And Jesus says, well, here's what it means. Here's the lesson you can get out of it. Um, or then Paul explained why Abraham sent Hagar away. And he explained how it's a picture of the law and the gospel. With this story, we have none of that. Just thrown in here. Uh, the very, this is the end of a chapter. The very next chapter, it just goes in to talk about another person and another storyline. And this is just thrown in there for us to wonder, what on earth is this doing in God's word? And the Bible can be like this sometimes, we have to recognize. Like, it can just give you the wildest story you've ever heard, and then be like, anyway, moving on. Um, we're going to move on to what is also happening. And one of the things that I want us to really focus on and learn is just like a few weeks ago when we talked about how some of the most obscure parts of the Bible to us can have the result of basically being like the lid left off the licorice. And we can read these stories, and we can just have hard hearts. We can just think, well, there's nothing for me here. I better just move on and find something that I can learn from. Um, but we want to put that, that lid back on the licorice, to have the soft hearts, and we want to actually lean in and listen. And one of the things that we should always remember is that if it's weird, it's important. And this is going to be something that I want us to remember. If it's weird in the Bible, if it seems really confusing to you, then you have to know it's probably kind of important. And this is going to require us to listen, to lean in. It's not going to be a quick read. It's not going to be like, oh, now I immediately know how this changes my walk with Christ. It's going to take a bit of work. But again, Jesus... He's looking for listeners. He's looking to draw us closer, to come before him, to ask, what is it that you're speaking to me? So that's what we're going to look at with this very strange story here, where Elisha was just insulted for being bald. Um, now, I'm going to open up with you guys a little bit that uh, being bald and going bald is actually one of my big fears at the moment. Uh, my hairline is not where it once was. Um, and if you meet my dad, which you will in a few weeks, as they'll be spending a little bit of time here, you'll see that he is very bald. Um, and then you will find out, well, they say it comes from your mom's side of the family, but every fowler man is bald. His dad was bald. His brother was bald. Everybody on that side of the family is bald. And so this is a very real fear that I have. Um, but I know for a lot of people, I've had some friends that have gone bald very young, and it can be kind of a traumatic thing. Um, a lot of them have mentioned that they have, you know, maybe some abandonment issues because their very own hair abandoned them. One day it was there, and then it wasn't. And they've mentioned that it can be a very difficult thing. And people have tried to encourage me, as I've expressed this fear, that don't worry, you know, bald is beautiful, and they say those things. Or they'll say, you know, well, maybe you've heard this before, too, that, well, baldness is caused by, by too much testosterone, and bald guys actually have more testosterone, right? Have you heard that before? Well, it turns out it's not true. Um, what bald guys lack in hair, they make up for in marketing. Um, they definitely have done a good job of spreading that around. Um, but either way, what is the message here? Is the message here that, like, hey, you know, bald guys are sensitive about it, we shouldn't say anything? Um, is that just all it is? Uh, because 
Like, sometimes it sounds like that. Or when I read this, I think, well, okay, Jesus never interpreted this and said, you know, by the way, if you have friends who are bald, don't bring it up. Let them bring it up when they're ready. Um, he didn't say that. Um, and when I read this, I wonder, like, well, maybe it's about just, like, being careful what you say. Like, I almost think Elisha would say, you know, he's cursing them in the name of the Lord. And then after it happened, he's wondering, like, whoa, God, like, I didn't mean that. Like, I didn't mean straight-up bear attack. I was thinking maybe they could get sick or, like, break a toe or something. Um, not that. Or I've often heard this story interpreted just from the perspective of, like, respecting those in leadership. Um, and it's funny because actually a lot of commentators and even pastors have, have gone through this story and they've made it about how if God has put someone in leadership in ministry, then you respect them and you don't make fun of them. And I would love to preach that message because you guys do need to respect my authority and never make fun of me ever, or I could send the bears after you. But I, I don't think that's all it is. I do think the story is more complicated than that. And it's weird and you can't really see it on the surface. And I think we're tempted to just take those shallow little like moral lessons out of it. Um, but I'm going to show you what I think this story is about, is I think this story is about God's wrath towards idolatry, and this is a story about God fighting for shalom, fighting for peace in his world. And you might not be able to see that right off the bat, but this is going to be a bit of a, a meta-sermon where I'm going to show you how we can get that. I'm going to show you how we can figure out what this story is telling us here. The process of how to figure out from an obscure story that seems to not really have much relevance to our lives, how we can see and learn about God's wrath towards idolatry and how God is fighting for peace. God is fighting for shalom in this world. And one of the ways that we're going to do that, um, we're going to go through just some very simple Bible study tips here. And that is, we're going to ask those simple questions of the who, what, when, where, why, and we're going to be able to determine what is God speaking through this. We're not going to go through in that exact order. But whenever we're reading some of the most obscure parts of the Bible, these are some tools, these are some processes that you can go through that will help you to figure it out. Instead of just going through and being like, well, what does this have to do? I guess I'll be nice to bald guys from now on. I promise you there's more, but Jesus is looking for us to listen. And so we're going to go through and we're going to ask some of these questions. Um, the first one, we're just asking the question, who? Okay, well, who is in the story? What is going on? And the main character here, the main person that is in the story is Elisha, the prophet. And by just looking at kind of the context around it, if we just read the chapter that this takes place in, if we just read the beginning of that chapter, we'll see that Elisha was mentored by a guy named Elijah, and he was a prophet. And prophets, they were assigned by God to be this special in-between between God and man. Because as we know the story that Ray Straub will remind us every single week is that mankind was made to live in the garden with God. But when sin entered the picture, that relationship was separated. Where there was peace, where there was completion, there was now separation, there was division. There was a break in this shalom. And so God and man no longer be in relationship in the same way because our sinful nature it's just not safe for us to be in the presence of a holy God. Um, the natures don't mix there. It's like oil and water, but also God is so holy and we so sinful because of what happened in Genesis 3 that it's not even safe for us to be in his holy presence. And so our relationship with God was fractured and our relationship with nature was fractured. Our relationship on this earth, all of the earth, was essentially wrecked by sin. And so prophets were installed to be a person who could go before God, could hear from him, and then would go before the people 
and would instruct the people, hey, this is what God is calling you to do, to live in to the shalom that he has made the world to live in. Here is what God is calling you to do, to be reconciled to me. And he, prophets are always calling the people to repentance, calling the people away from the things that they're turning to and back towards God. And so this was Elisha's role. And Elisha, he was mentored, or he was essentially taught by the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. You're probably familiar with the story of him having the little like prophet duel with the prophets of Baal, where they built those altars, and they were trying to see whose God would burn up the altar first. And so it's like the prophets of Baal were praying over their altar, and they were praying and praying, and nothing was happening, and Elijah, instead of actually like praying, he was just insulting them and saying, hey, well, your God's probably on the toilet or something. And then the prophets of Baal start cutting themselves, and it gets really intense, and so he finally, he ends it. He prays to God, and God shows himself stronger than Baal, burns up the altar, right? And Elijah was very powerful. He was used by God in amazing ways in the Old Testament. And so for Elisha to step into the shoes that he's essentially going to have to do that we see in the beginning of this chapter is, is that's a big task. These are big shoes to fill. He's going to take over for Elijah. And Elijah had a really important role in actually casting out idolatry and actually preaching against the idolatry in the area. And so Elisha, he's going to have to kind of continue that. But you learn a few other things when you just look at the characters in this story. And one of them is that you learn that Elijah, he's described as a really hairy guy. Um, I don't know how hairy, but they just describe him as being covered in hair. And if you know about John the Baptist, then you know that John the Baptist, he was operating in the spirit of Elijah. He was supposed to be a prophet just like Elijah. And he lived out in the wilderness, and they say he wore a lot of camel hair. And most speculate that that was kind of his cosplay of Elijah, that he was going to wear hair so that everyone would know he's fulfilling the same role of Elijah, right? And so you can kind of see here, okay, well now Elisha has these big shoes to fill, and he's already wondering if he's going to be able to do it. Everyone else is questioning, well, he's not going to be the same as Elijah. Um, but also, his appearance seems to be the opposite. Because if Elijah was this hairy guy, Elisha, well, he must be bald, or they probably wouldn't make fun of him there. But Elisha here, he knows that, well, it wasn't Elijah's hair, and it wasn't just Elijah being a good guy that made the difference between him being used by God and not. And so Elisha knows that it was God's anointing of him that did all the work. And so what happens right before this in this chapter is that Elisha, knowing that Elijah is going to be leaving, they have this conversation because Elijah is going to be leaving soon. God told all the other prophets about it, and so the other prophets are kind of bugging Elisha, and they're like, hey, he's leaving soon. You ready? He's leaving soon. Are you ready? And he's just saying, be quiet. I think he was a little nervous. Um, but they have this conversation in verse 9 of this same chapter, um, where when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, tell me what I can do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Essentially, the spiritual gifts that God has given you, I want twice that much. I need God to empower me double what he's empowered you. Um, and initially, Elijah actually discouraged him a bit, and he's like saying, this is a very difficult thing to ask. Um, but nonetheless... I think God was pleased by that, that just huge ask that he gave, by that bold request, and God wants to empower his people, and so God granted that double portion to Elisha. And now Elisha, right before this bear attack story, Elisha is essentially the most Holy Spirit-empowered person that has lived. 
He's empowered by God twice as much as the last prophet was. And this is the beginning of now Elisha's prophetic ministry. And so here, I think it's important to see, okay, well, here's who is involved. This is Elisha, a man who just received a double portion of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the start of his ministry. So that's the first character we see. The next character we see um, are obviously bears. Bears here. Um, most likely two female Syrian brown bears that they're kind of thinking. Um, and one of the things I think to keep in mind, and I didn't put this as a note, um, but as we're thinking about, okay, well, the reason that we need prophets is because this shalom has been broken, that this relationship between God and man has been broken, that the earth is sick with sin. Well, one of the things I think we have to know, and I think that we have this deep sense inside of us that we know to be true, is that bears should be our friends, right? I mean, bears are adorable. We all agree that. Um, we've been buying a lot of baby clothes recently, and baby clothes, especially coats or hats, they almost always have little bear ears on them. Um, and little kids' cartoons always have bears because we love bears. They're, like, adorable. And I think there's something in there that, you know, is maybe a reminder of the Edenic state when we did live at peace. Um, but we know now that bears are not our friends. They are not safe. Uh, bears don't actually attack humans all that often, but they could if they wanted to. Um, worldwide, there are about 44 bear attacks each year. That was in 2022 there were. So you are actually more likely to be bitten by a human than by a bear. Don't worry. Um, but in this story, that was actually an entire year's worth of bear attacks just in one moment. Um, and the, uh, the National Park Service actually put out this post just in the month of February where they're warning people who are hiking in bear country. They're saying, you know, if you ever come across a bear, remember they're dangerous, they're not your friend. And also never push a slower friend down even if you feel that the friendship has run its course. Um, so they're warning us, you know, that this, this is a real danger. This is something that we have to be aware of. There was actually a survey done um, a few years ago where they surveyed people on, like, hey, which animals do you think you could beat in a fight if you're unarmed? And 6% of Americans think that they could beat a grizzly bear unarmed, which is 6% too high. Uh, because grizzly bears, they're one of the biggest kind of bears. They can grow over 9 feet tall, over 1,700 pounds. Um, I would say you don't have much of a chance. Um, but the kind of bear that likely attacked these guys in Elisha's story, they estimate was probably a, what they call a Syrian brown bear, which are almost extinct at this point, but there are a few left, and there are a lot in zoos. Um, but they're a lot smaller than grizzly bears. They're only about six feet tall, and they're around 600 pounds, so more like an American black bear here. But they could still kill you. They could still do some serious damage. Um, but while these bears, I think, are dangerous, and I think, obviously, it's something that is just traumatic, there have been different hints, I think, throughout history, especially with Syrian brown bears, hints of that Edenic state that we're supposed to live in, of being friends with bears. And there was actually a Syrian brown bear who became pretty famous around the time of World War II um, because this is a bear named Wojtek who was adopted by a Polish artillery crew as they were training in Israel before World War II. Some street vendor was selling baby bear cub, and so... They did what you would do if you were training for World War II. They bought him. Um, and they raised him as a pet. Um, and they say, you know, he was a great little pet. Um, they liked to, once he grew up, they would, like, wrestle him all the time. And they say, you know, he was, like, just one of the guys. But wrestling him was kind of scary because guys would always end up really scratched and beat up. So they had to be careful. And in order to really make him one of the guys, they, like, fed him, uh, like, beer and wine, and they even taught him how to smoke cigarettes, which, like, probably isn't really the Edenic state that we're supposed to have um, with bears. 
Um, but nonetheless, Wojtek became part of their crew. And when this group of Polish artillery crew was going to be deployed to war, they were told that they couldn't take Wojtek with them. Wojtek had to stay, he had to stay in the Middle East, um, but they actually found a way to get him to go with them. They actually made him a private. Um, they got him his own paycheck, his own rank, he had his own serial number. He got deployed with them. Um, and they tell this story about them being at war with the Axis powers, and Wojtek just there, like, loitering, not knowing what to do. But he started seeing the rest of the crew, like, carry boxes of ammunition to the front and around, and he started mimicking the crew. And so Wojtek went up to a truck, and what would take, mo like, most crews, two guys had to carry a box at a time. He was, like, 650 pounds, so he could just carry a box all by himself. And Wojtek was carrying ammunition to the front. And because of that, um, he was honored in crazy ways. They actually made their, um, their sign for their crew as being Wojtek carrying a big shell. Um, and they had this on cars, on tanks, on clothing, everything. Wojtek survived the war. They retired him in Scotland, where he like lived at a zoo, like signing autographs and smoking cigarettes, they say. Um, and he died at 21, which is about average for a Syrian brown bear. And they actually have a statue of him in Edinburgh, Scotland, where he lived, where here's this bear carrying this artillery shell. Um, and this is like, one, it's like this beautiful picture that like, yeah, like the Edenic state is us friends with bears, right? Like maybe not drinking buddies and smoking with them, but friends. But the ironic thing is that one of the best pictures we have of Return to that state and friends with bears was during the nastiest time in human history during World War II. <laughs> like, um, such a picture of the fallenness of humanity. Um, but there's these glimpses that we have of what God has actually made and how it's supposed to be. And I just think that story is such a clear picture of sinful humanity and the world that we live in. Where, just like Elisha here, Elisha, he was empowered by the Creator God. He was sent to save the people from their idolatry. He was sent to preach this message of salvation, that they're to worship Yahweh. But instead, he was just mocked, harassed. He was attacked. It's like, you want to go up and be friends with this bear? All it's going to do is attack you. And this is essentially happening to Elisha here. And the first thing that I think we have to recognize is that this, and we're going to get to more, that this, I think, made God angry. Makes God angry. And so... There's Elisha, there's this bear, and the ones who attacked Elisha, um, it just says in the NIV, some boys. Or if you have another version, I know like the ESV says small boys, and I know a lot of people imagine it's like little fourth graders who were just on the side of the road, and it's like, yeah, they're just doing what kids do, so wrong place, wrong time, poor kids. Um, but this word, um, the word that's used here, it can be used for kids, but it's actually more commonly used just for like immature men. Um, the word is na'arkatan. Um, and it's kind of a man whose behavior could be recognized as being like a child. It's not fully an insult, but it's just like slightly immature. And Solomon used this exact same word in 1 Kings chapter 3, where he was saying that he's too immature, he's too unprepared to be the king. And so he says this, he says, Now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a Naarkatan, which is translated here as a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. And we don't know Solomon's exact age at that point, but we estimate he was between 20 and 25. So if he's young, he wasn't like a little fourth grade child. And so it's often used kind of for immature child or sometimes, or immature man, or it's sometimes used kind of like we use the word bachelor, where it's just a younger man who is not yet head of household, or in some specific cases, and this one I think is going to 
help us. It's specifically used for young men who might be training to become a priest, a prophet, or are part of a royal line and are training to enter into royalty. And we see it used this way in 1 Kings chapter 12, and we have that verse on the screen as well, where the king, in 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, the king is consulting with his elders, and he doesn't really like the message that the elders give him. And so Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the Naarkatan, the young men, who had grown up with him and were serving him. And it's the same word used here, Solomon used for himself, and then these are men who are advising the king. They're kind of in this royal line here. They're being prepared either for kingly royal duty, or sometimes it's used for people being prepared for like prophetic or priestly duty. And so this group of guys wasn't just a bunch of little kids who were thrown out insults. This seems to be young men who are from a royal or a priestly line in some way which is going to help us to understand why God would have wrath and anger towards this. Because if we know, okay, this, these some boys, they must be these young men who are part of this priestly line. Um, well, one of the things that we have to ask is like, well, where do they live? And this is going to help us because we're told that he's going to Bethel, that they're here in Bethel. And so this is kind of answering the question of where. Um, Sometimes it's good to be a priest, but depending on what religion, and you can kind of determine that by where they live. And well, Bethel, Bethel is a really important city, especially in the Old Testament. It's the second most mentioned city in the Old Testament after Jerusalem. Um, It's the place where when Abram, which we just went over, when Abram was first called by God um, to go and to move into the land of Canaan, the first place that Abram set up an altar and worshipped Yahweh was in Bethel. It was the first altar of worship he set up. And then it was Jacob who, when Jacob had his dream of what we now know as Jacob's ladder, that took place at Bethel. And so Jacob is the one who named it Bethel, or Bethel, which means the house of God, because this was a place which God seemed to dwell. This was God's house. This was a place of worship. And it began that way, but as time went on, Bethel went through a really rough season um, when the nation of Israel split there was the king of the north who, for political reasons, did not want people going to worship in Jerusalem, and he actually set up another religion of this golden calf worship so that people would not travel to Jerusalem to worship, but instead he set it up in Bethel, in the northern kingdom, so that they would go there to worship. And so Bethel in the Old Testament, because of that, because of this other worship that was taking place there, it essentially became a rival center of worship to Jerusalem where people would go to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, they would go to Bethel to worship these false gods. And over and over in the Old Testament, as you read, you'll see Bethel used as like an archetype for false idolatrous worship. This is where like illegitimate idolatry takes place. And so if these young men, potentially in a priestly or royal line, are in Bethel, well then there's a reason that they're going to mock and attack Elisha here they would identify probably as enemies of God, enemies of Yahweh. They are in opposition to Elisha and everything he wants to do. This isn't just them taking advantage of a bald guy that they can pick on. This is them making a clear statement, hey, we worship this guy, we do not like you. We do not like you. And so it's important to consider, whenever we see these place names, take a little trip to figure out what happens in this place. How is this place described? Is this a good place? Is this a bad place in the Old Testament? What is happening here? 
And so that's a bit of who these guys are. Now let's look at what they say. So they mock him, they attack him, um, and it seems like they do it in a pretty, like, not the worst way. I mean, they just make fun of his hairline. That's not too bad. Um, and as we kind of mentioned, a bit of the nuance that this could have in there for us would be just the contrast between him and Elijah, essentially saying like, hey, well, if you're taking the place of Elijah, he was a really hairy guy, you're the opposite. You're not gonna be able to fill his shoes. So there's an aspect where they could just be questioning if Elijah could carry on the job. Because Elisha, he was supposed to do what Elijah did, and that's drive idol worship out of Bethel. And now they're saying, you're not going to be able to do that. You're not going to be able to do that. So there's a bit of a, a questioning there of if you'll be able to do that. But we know that Elisha, it didn't matter about his hairline. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so they call him bald there. Most likely, that's what it's about. It's the comparison to Elijah. Um, but then they also tell him, you know, get out of here. Or some of your versions might say, like, go up, go up. Um, and there might be a few things happening here. Um, one is that they could just be saying, they're kind of using the same language that's described when Elijah got taken away in the chariots of fire, where they're like, go up, essentially like, get out of here, um, which seems to make sense. They don't like him. They're just saying, hey, get out of here. We don't want you here. We don't like you here. Um, but going up was also used, especially in this area, for climbing the hill in which they had their idols on. And they could be essentially saying, like, you need to go up and worship our God. You're in our territory now. Get your Yahweh worship out of here. You're going to worship our God. And if there's 42 of them, it could be fairly intimidating. Um, but essentially, that's what they could be doing in this insult. It's not just as simple as get out of here. But again, that's offensive to God as well because God has sent this prophet to rid this land of idolatry. And they're saying, get out of here. We don't want you here. But also here, they're making this statement, trying to encourage him to worship their God. Hey, this is our God's land, not yours. And so who they are and what they do and what they say really speaks to us about what's happening here. Because they're not just teasing a prophet. They're dishonoring God. They are blaspheming God's guy. And this is a slap in the face to God, to God worship. Saying this is our territory. This is our land. We don't worship Yahweh here. We worship our own God. And so this is a bit of a smack in the face to Yahweh worship. They're insulting God himself through this. And then we see what Elisha did in response, where he curses them. And it said that he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And so he made it very clear. He wasn't just saying, I hate you, you're mean. Um, he was speaking God's very name, making it clear that if something is going to happen, this is why it happened. This is who did it. And that's mentioned in there on purpose, to say who it is that is carrying out this punishment, and to say whose land this is supposed to be. This is Yahweh's land. This is God's territory here. We're supposed to be worshiping him. And that's what he's saying there when he curses them in the name of the Lord. And so they would have understood, because of the way that he cursed them, that these bears were the result of divine punishment. This isn't just like natural consequences. Like, you know, when you're mean to people, bears come. He's making it very clear, the reason that these bears Okay. He's making it very clear the reason that this has happened. That even though the world looks like it's just full of chaos and sin, that creation still obeys God. That even though they think this is their territory, they're safe to do what they want, God is reminding them, no, no, no. This is my house. I'm still in control here. I'm still in control here. 
And we know that God using creation to dole out punishment is a fairly common thing that we read throughout the Bible over and over again. Um, he did this. You've read the Exodus account where there were ten plagues, right? And maybe you've been able to find out that those ten plagues um, were actually pretty uh, close connections to ten different Egyptian gods as a way for God to say, like, oh, these might be your gods. Well, I'm in control of them. I'm twisting them against you. Or there was the case after the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness where they were complaining and they felt like God was holding out on them. Um, All you're giving us is manna and this water. We want more. And they were continuing to almost say the same kinds of things that Adam and Eve were tempted by in the garden, where there's this idea that, well, God is holding out on you. The good food is somewhere else. And so what God did in the Exodus was he sent venomous snakes in there. You're going to believe the lie of the snake? Here are your snakes. And then there's actually another story. Um, just a few chapters later, after this bear attack in 2 Kings chapter 17, where God actually sends lions in. And it's, I'll go ahead and read the story. Basically, Assyria had invaded the land, and they were trying to ethnically cleanse Israel here. And so the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and Seravaim, and settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over Samaria and lived in its towns, and when they first lived there, they did not worship the Lord. And so, he sent lions among them, and they killed some of the people. It was reported to the king of Assyria that the people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria do not know what the God of that country requires. He sent lions among them, which are killing them off, because the people do not know what he requires. So they're in panic mode here. They know that this is God doing this. And then the king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests that you took captive from Samaria go back to live there and teach the people what the God of the land requires. And so one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel and taught them how to worship the Lord. (laughs) And so you see another story of essentially... The Assyrians trying to take over here. Lions played a big role in their idolatry. And God's saying, they're not on your side. They're under control by me. And there's a whole nother can that we could go into with that story. But what you see here is God's wrath towards idolatry. And over and over again, he uses nature, he uses these things to show that. Uses these things to show that. So that's what I think this story is about. It's about God's wrath towards idolatry and God fighting for shalom, fighting for shalom. So that's our interpretation of the story. But now I know a lot of you are probably still sitting there wondering, like, okay, so God has wrath towards idolatry and could send lions and bears and venomous snakes to punish it. What are we supposed to do with that? Now do we just live paranoid that he's going to send bears after us? Like, how do we process this idea? And And I know that that's going to be a big question because we have difficulty with the idea of God's wrath, don't we? We have difficulty with the idea of God punishing in this way. And that's that's real, and I think we have to kind of lean into that, and we're going to kind of discuss that. Because last week, you know, we talked about the letter of 3 John, and we talked about how we have this difficulty of having and allowing truth and love to be present in our conversations, in our hearts, And we have a difficulty in imagining God being a God of truth and of love. And oftentimes we sway to one or the other. And with wrath, it's kind of the same thing. Where oftentimes we have a very difficult feeling in our gut. We have just this hard time picturing a God who is so full of love being also full of wrath. 
And we have a hard time being okay with allowing God to do this, doing both, being full of wrath, full of love, of God having anger and God having mercy, of God holding to the truth and of God being a God of grace. And I think, especially when we read some of the most difficult parts of the Bible, some of the most difficult parts of the Bible are difficult to us because we have a hard time allowing God to do both. That we, we want to go one way or the other. We can't possibly understand how there could be both love and wrath. But this is how the Bible describes God. This is how he reveals himself. And I just want to encourage us away from that black or white shifting of the bubble um, to think that either God has no wrath um, and he is all love or he's all, all wrath and no love. Um, like we can't just think in only those two categories. Both are true. He's full of love, but he does have wrath. And I know it happens all the time where whenever this conversation comes up, we just want to shift to the other side. We just want to tilt the level one way or another. We just can't let both be true. And so either we say, okay, well, there can never be any anger. God is never going to be mad at anyone. He's never going to dole out wrath on anything. And we just completely dismiss that part. Or we can, you know, turn the other way and we can say, well, you know, God is all wrath, um, no love. And so we are tempted to think that God is only ever anger, or we're tempted to think that we are supposed to be that way as well. And I just want to encourage us to see that the Bible presents God as both, as both. God has wrath, but he's full of love. He's full of love. And one of the reasons I think it's hard for us to consider is because we don't always understand this idea of wrath and anger, because we always view it through our human eyes of how maybe we have expressed wrath in the past or how we've seen it. Um, and especially on a week like St. Patrick's Day, I know for me it's easy to personify wrath as just like an angry, like punching, like fighting Irish, like the Notre Dame logo, right? Like that's, yeah, that's wrath. Um, but again, that's, that's human's wrath. Jesus' wrath is, is quite different. Um, it's never just random aggression. It's never just like snapping because of a short fuse. Um, God's wrath is always right, just punishment of sin. And what makes God mad it's very often idolatry, and it's very often these things that go against the way that his creation was made that break down shalom, that break down our relationship with him, that break down our relationship with one another. These are the things that God fights against, and God pours out his wrath on. God is fighting for that peace. And the first time that we ever see God's wrath in the Bible is, of course, when he flooded the world, Noah's Ark, and it tells us why this happened in Genesis chapter 6. It says that the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Only evil all the time. So this is just reason for God's wrath. And then, it was in Exodus chapter 20, in the Ten Commandments where God is making it clear that idolatry is not something he tolerates. And he says that you will not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth below or in the waters below. He said, you will not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And the idea of jealousy is actually really closely connected with wrath as well. Um, because if God gets angry, if God's wrath is poured out because of idolatry, because of these things that break the way that his world is supposed to run, well, we have to remember that, well, his jealousy comes from this place of being the one who does own everything, that we are to be his people, and he has a reason to be jealous then. When we go off 
worshiping other gods. There's a right kind of jealousy. Oftentimes, our jealousy is motivated by selfish things. But even then, there can be some right examples. Um, you know, if I were to see another baby and just say, like, oh, that's an adorable baby. I'm going to spend all my time, my money, and my effort um, on that baby. Then Lena would be rightly jealous to say, no, you've made a commitment to be my husband, to be Lydia's father. Um, I'm jealous for that, those resources. You can't just spend it all on that. You can't just take this other family and abandon this. And God is expressing the same thing where, hey, you are my people. I'm the one who made you. I actually made these other things that you're worshiping. And he's a right to be jealous on that. So he says, I'm a jealous God. And then it goes on in that same commandment. That God is a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of their parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Which seems at first like, wow, that doesn't seem fair. He'd punish descendants. But then he says, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so here, okay, there is wrath. There is punishment. But notice the comparison between his wrath, between his punishment. He said, I will punish the descendants for three or four generations. But how many receive love? A thousand generations. A thousand generations. And so God is making it clear, hey, my wrath is intense. It's not something to be messed with. But my love is even more intense. My love is even more intense. He's showing himself here, way back in the Ten Commandments, to have both. To have both. And he's essentially saying, well, that is where my wrath is motivated from. My wrath is motivated from this jealousy for you. But my love is so much bigger. My love will go for a thousand generations. And so the Old Testament, it always shows God as being this God of mercy. This God of mercy, but yet there always is a bit of wrath. There's this bit of wrath. And as that kind of freaks us out and makes us wonder, as we continue um, to study God's wrath, as we continue to see how it is that he presents himself as being God so full of love, but also having this wrath, one of the things that we have to see is that God is the God who always offers a way out of this wrath. He's always a God who offers a way to not face the wrath. And he does this in Ezekiel chapter 33, when Ezekiel, he's a prophet, he's preaching to the people, repent, turn from these idols, turn from your way. And God says, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? And so God is saying, hey, my wrath is on its way, but it's not too late. You don't have to go down this way, essentially. He's saying, why will you keep on rejecting me and going this way? He says there's no reason to keep going there. He says there's no reason to keep living like this. There is no reason to keep making fun of bald people. Turn to me. Turn to me and live. And I know when we read these things, we think, but like, ah, you know, we have a hard time seeing God as having anger, God as having love, and we have a hard time reconciling the God of the Old Testament with the God of the New Testament, right? And we have to continually remind her the entire, the entire Bible is a unified story leading to Jesus here. And Jesus began his ministry, his first opening line is repent. It wasn't as sad as we are to hear that. Jesus' first line was not, hey, Jesus loves you, free hugs. His first line was repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, I'm the king. All of this belongs to me. 
You've been worshiping these other things, but now it's mine. Turn to me and live. And then the first act that the Gospel of John records is Jesus showing a bit of that wrath, walking into the temple, and clearing it out. Where in God's house, there wasn't proper worship. And what was supposed to be worship of God, it was injustice, it was taking advantage of the poor, it was worshiping money over worshiping God, and Jesus just said, I'm clearing this out. And you see his wrath there. But Jesus' wrath... It's not just random. It's not like human wrath. It's always necessary. It's always justified. And it's essentially being like a surgeon where something is wrong and he needs to shed a little blood to make it right. It's not always pretty, but if we trust that he's a good God, then we trust that his anger, his wrath, his punishment is good. And it won't always be pretty, but nonetheless, it's still good. And this isn't just something that we see in the Old Testament. It's something that we see in Jesus all through the story. And we especially see it in everybody's favorite book, Book of Revelation, where if you know the story, especially around chapter 6, where you know that that Jesus is opening the scroll, and the scroll has a bunch of seals, and and the scroll is the possession, it's the, the ownership of the world, and Jesus is opening this scroll, he's taking back ownership of the world, and as these seals are opened... It's chaos. It's death. It's what we typically think of as like the tribulation, right? People are dying left and right. It's chaos. It's terrifying. And it's saying that people are crying out to be saved from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb. That Jesus, this Lamb who died on our behalf, also has this wrath. He is also causing all of this. And we kind of read this and we wonder, like, why does this have to be done? Like, why do we have to see... um, death, the violence, all these different things. How can Jesus, who's perfectly loving, pour out wrath? Um, But we have to remember that this is God putting the world right, making things right, restoring shalom. And in order for that to happen, he does have to do this. He has to pour out his wrath. It's like a surgeon making these incisions. And God's wrath is actually the only thing that can make some things, especially in the world, right. I know this is hard for us, to grasp, but it's something we have to continue to trust him in, that he is good. It's the only thing that can set a broken world right. And I think any time we read about this and we read about God's wrath, God's punishment, and maybe we're tempted to get a little angry, and I think we have to recognize, okay, well, why are we allowed to be angry, but God not? Um, and I think we recognize that we live in a fallen world, and we often justify other kinds of anger and other wrath, and we have to give God permission to do the same. Um, because it was Miroslav Volf, who I thought described this well, where he said that in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. And most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. Because that's, that's the world we live in, this fallen world on this side of the fall. It's, we live in this inescapable reality of it's either God's violence or ours. It's either God's wrath or ours. And the story of Elisha and the bears here is a picture of that. Elisha facing down evil, facing down an attack, But knowing that God is the judge, God is the one 
who can allow wrath and fix these things. And so Elisha knew he didn't have to fight back. He didn't have to go and slap these guys. He didn't have to go and fight this battle. He just put it in God's hands. And God fought that battle. And so this is a good reminder for us. I think any time that we see God's wrath, God's judgment, God's violence essentially in the Bible, then we're reminded that this is the reason that we don't have to be violent, that we don't have to attack those who insult us, that we don't have to attack those who blaspheme the name of God, that the Lamb, Jesus, who is good, he is the one who can do this. He is the one who can take care of himself. And we can trust that the Lamb is also the Lion, that the one who is in control of all creation, he can make things right in his way. And so when we're faced with attacks, when we're faced with situations in our life which just seem so apart from God's will and apart from shalom, we know that we don't have to be the one to go fight that battle because it's God who will take care of that and fight it for us. And we're reminded even with all the chaos in Revelation at the very end, Revelation chapter 19, that the God who judges the evil of the world after, it says after chance after chance, after people don't repent, all the saints, all the believers say, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. And so even when it looks like, man, God's wrath does not seem like it should be warranted here, it doesn't seem justified, I think we just have to trust that he is and always is good. And in the end, all we're going to declare, true and just are his judgments. Any punishment that he gave out, any wrath that he poured out, is true and just. And we can trust in that. We can trust in that. And we also know that for those of us who believe in Jesus, that Jesus took on that wrath for us. He took on that wrath for us. And so we don't have to be worried for those of us in Christ of, okay, well, God has wrath and he will make things right in this way. I don't think we have to be worried that he is going to come after us because Jesus died to take that wrath for us. And we were essentially, we're the ones who poked the bears. We're the ones who made the mess. We were the mockers. We're the ones who worshipped creation instead of the creator. Um, And he's a lot faster than we are. He could have left us in the dust and let the the judgment that God has sent that was on its way catch us. Um, But instead, when you read the Gospels, you see that God's judgment was on its way and Jesus laid down his life. He let us go instead. And when you read the Gospel, when you read the story of Jesus' trial, And you'll see that they had the option to release one or two prisoners when Jesus was on trial. They could release Jesus, or they could release this guy named Barabbas. Barabbas was a guy leading an insurrection who was preaching a message that we should hate our Roman enemies, that we can't trust God to fight these battles. We have to go fight it for ourselves. Or they could release Jesus, the one who said we're to love our Roman enemies. And of course, they released Barabbas, and arrested and killed Jesus. And it was the one who poked the bear, who went off free, and Jesus is the one who took that punishment for us. And all of this, I think, is wrapped up in the story of Elisha and the bears as well. That knowing that God is sending the bears to punish idolatry. And Jesus said, you go. And he took that for us. And so knowing this, knowing what we know, we don't have to be paranoid about God's wrath here. I think for those of us who are not in Christ, then this is the call to us to think, okay, well, 
Why die? Why not turn to God and live? But for those of us who do believe in Jesus, hey, this is motivation to share that message with others. To share that message of turn and live. Why die like this? Why face this wrath? And it's those of us who, who believe in Jesus who I think are able to read this story and see that we are just as guilty and idolatrous as these Bethel boys. Um, we've made fun of bald guys in the past. But Jesus took on that wrath for us. And so frankly for us, this is just a reason to sing. This is a reason to praise God. And so I'm going to invite you um, to please stand. Well, we're going to pray and we're going to continue in worship. So, Father God, uh, we just thank you. We thank you for being gracious and merciful to us. How even though we are the ones who poke the bear, even though we are among the scoffers, that you took all the punishment for us. And God, we just confess of the different times in which we read about your wrath, your anger. We don't believe it's justified. And would your spirit just help us to fully grasp who you are and to understand that you are loving, that you're full of grace and you're full of truth, and that you do hold sin to account, that you do make things right. So would you just help us, help us to communicate that well to a world that desperately needs to hear this message, that there is danger in rebelling against the living God yet there is hope and there is life offered in Christ. God, help us to be able to communicate that well and help us to accept that in our own hearts. That when the, the hurls of insults come at us, that we would be able to stand firm knowing that you've taken all that, that you are in control, and that you are the judge, not us. So would you help us to live that out? And God, uh, now we just turn to you in praise. Uh, with just a posture of thanks, thanking you for saving us. So we love you. It's in your name that we pray.
ground church now as you go and when you go with the words of 1st Thessalonians chapter 5 as a blessing for God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ he died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep we may live together with him and therefore encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing so grace and peace come ground. thank you for being here have a wonderful week I was rushing on the first verse a little bit.